Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. I feel obligated to alert you this morning about a bill that has passed both houses of the California legislature, very likely to be signed into law by Governor Newsom there. Um, But the content is so troubling, I don't even know where to start because I can't read it to you because it's not appropriate for um, Christian, let alone uh, family programming. So let me just say this um, on August 31st, so just a couple of days ago. The California Senate passed SB, that stands for Senate Bill, SB 145. Now, while it does not change the underlying crime of child rape, it does change whether or not those convicted of such crimes would be required to register as sex offenders. So this is happening at the same time that we are having a nationwide ad campaign seeking to identify thousands of people who were victimized as children when they were in the Boy Scouts. To be clear, everyone involved in those cases are uh, genetic males. And so the victims were all boys at the time these crimes were committed. So the reason that I, I take those two things together is because in California, if Governor Newsom actually signs SB 145 into effect, As long as there was no more than 10 years difference in age between the juvenile who was victimized and the Boy Scout leader who victimized him, and as long as the victim was at least 15 years old when the male-on-male rape took place, the offender will not be registered as a sex offender. Does that make any sense to you? Does that, on the face of it, make any sense to you? Uh, The language that you're going to read in here, uh, if you were to go and do a little research on SB 145, um, you're going to see uh, one word repeated, and that is non-forcible. Non-forcible. Let me just tell you, non-forcible is code speak for consensual. Children cannot consent to sex of any kind. Uh, uh, So let's be clear what's going on here. Let's be very clear what's going on here. The age of consent is about to be obliterated if what we're talking about uh, is is same-sex sexual activity. If the offender and the victim are the same sex, what we are seeing is a step in the direction, a clear, a clear legal step, concretized in state law, a legal step in the direction of obliterating the very notion of the age of consent. If the victim uh, and the perpetrator are of the same sex. I know there's so much here, so many words I can't say, so much I can't talk about. Uh, be looking for the code speak here of non-forcible. That's a move in the direction of redefining the whole concept of consent. Pedophilia is on the table. 
All right, I know. I'm a little worked up about it. All right, I got Ben Johnson waiting in the wings. He and I are going to talk about a range of rights conversations. We'll be right back. is my right, a right given by God, to live a free life, to live in freedom. Joining me now is Ben Johnson, senior editor at the Acton Institute. You can follow him on Twitter at The Rights Writer. Um, ben, uh, is it possible to withstand cancel culture. Do you have any evidence out there that a person can actually stand up to the cancel culture and and hold their position? We have the evidence. The results are in and it's possible. Thank goodness. There you go. So you and I only need we only need one exemplar. We only need one guy. And then we're like, you know what? It can be done. And it's funny, you know, there's a psychological uh, reality behind this that uh, there have been studies done the way that protests turn into riots is one person breaks a window and everybody else realizes, hey, I could get away with that. And that's the negative aspect of this. The positive aspect is when one person stands up and refuses to go along with the crowd, other people realize, I can be like this person. I don't have to be a lemming. I don't have to be uh, someone who's simply a follower. I can use my own mind. And that person has, has survived. person by the name of uh, Carlin Romano, at least temporarily, he was former president of the National Book Critics Circle, which is the book reviewers organization. Back in June, when uh, everyone was drafting, every organization that you've ever belonged to emailed you a statement in support of Black Lives Matter. Uh, there was a Ugandan writer named uh, Hope Wabuki. I'll call her Hope because that's easier for a guy like me from Ohio. Uh, she, she drafted the statement. And among other things, it said that the group itself shared, and this is a quote, culpability in the system of erasure of BIPOC, which stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Colors, Voices in the Culture and Intellectual Conversation. Carlin Romano said that's absolute nonsense. He said without, uh, that he, he knew personally of, as his job as a book critic and the, the president of the organization, that he knew so many white editors who were goodwilled and publishers who fought for publication of black writers, and that they had actually made several people's careers. So, he ended up going public uh, after she, Hope, published all their emails online. And then she tweeted, I resign from book critics because racism. Because racism. Uh, great, great line. You can tell she's a talented writer. And uh, she continues to, to say, and she even implied that it would be, quote, dangerous for me to remain. Like her physical safety were somehow imperiled by the mere fact that someone disagreed with the statement. The organization published the group that she wrote, uh, but the fact that she went public cost five other board members, uh, including a black conservative named John McWhorter, whom I've published and worked with, to resign because of the way she acted. Now, the good news is this group had a vote. They did not have the votes to remove him from the board. Now, that's the good news. The bad news is you need a two-thirds vote, and 62% still voted against him. But... At least for now, he came through. He said, I'm not a racist. I'm not anti-black. I just don't check my mind at the door when people used to operating in echo chambers make false claims. 
And you know, at the risk of making a tautological argument, and by the way, there's your word of the day, tautological. That's T-A-U-T for those of you who are now going to ask me on ZipWhip how to spell it, tautological. Go ahead. T-A-U-T-O-L-O-G-I-C-A-L, tautology, meaning to repeat the same word twice. A book critic's job is to be critical. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's what you do. You engage intellectual conversations and ask how well an author proves a book's thesis. That's literally what you're paid for. They help us make better arguments. They help us think better and more clearly. And they help us sort through good arguments and bad arguments, which is the exact opposite of cancel culture. It quashes debate and equates questioning them with violence. And so at least momentarily, Carlin Romano stood his ground, defended good people who had tried to their very best to support and further the careers of good writers of, of every background because they're good writers. And for those who were engaged in reading good writers, regardless of uh, what their ethnicity happens to be, he's their champion. And he's proof that at least temporarily it is possible to stand up against the crowd, even on something this popular, and survive. All right. I, I want to... Um... I want to note for our listeners, when Ben says that the critic's job is to be critical, um, we have to reclaim our footing here on the classical definition of tolerance. Because as soon as Ben says the critic's job is to be critical, there are some people listening right now who are thinking to themselves, no, you can't be critical of anyone. That is not what we're talking about. The critic's job is to be critical of the ideas presented and the way in which they're presented if you're a book critic. Okay? So the, the classical definition of tolerance is all people are equal. All ideas are not. That has been completely perverted in our society today, which says all ideas are equal. And anyone who doesn't concede that all ideas are equal, well, that person is less than equal to the rest of us. And so... We, we have to reclaim some classical definitions like the classical definition of tolerance in order to even have an understanding of what it means to serve, let's say, as a book critic in the culture today. And the, the late uh, Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, who had a TV program back in the 50s, had the best statement on this. He said, tolerance is always for persons. It is never for principles. And intolerance is always for principles, never for persons. Our culture has reversed his wisdom. Interesting. All right. I'm, I'm going to look that quote up. All right. Ben Johnson and I have to take a very, very brief break. When we come back, we're going to have a conversation about potentially amending the U.S. Constitution. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continue my conversation with Ben Johnson. You can find him on Twitter at The Rights Writer. You can also find him at the Acton Institute, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Ben, uh, there is some conversation afoot uh, about the potential of amending the U.S. Constitution. Um, what's being at least floated? And if, 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 if we were going to amend the U.S. Constitution, is this the one, uh, is this the one amendment, the, is this the right amendment for the right time? Um, yeah. Or are there other things that if we're going to open it up, we ought to open up other conversations as well? Yeah, uh, this this conversation is one that's been ongoing for a very long time. What we're what uh, has been proposed is abolishing the Electoral College, which has been uh, a topic of discussion for my entire adult lifetime, my entire lifetime, probably yours as well, uh, simply because the the mechanism has changed over the years. Originally, when when it was founded, the Electoral College voted for everyone. 
people may not realize in the original elections, you didn't vote for president or vice president. You would vote for a local elector and somebody you knew from your community, and that person would then choose the president on your behalf. You had no choice in who the president was directly. Uh, that has changed, obviously. So now each state votes for the president and that state's slate of electors then votes. And uh, there's been talk of abolishing it because for out of the, the last several elections, there have been several cases where one person has won the popular vote and another person's won the electoral college. So they want to abolish that and say, in order to be president, you have to have an electoral majority of the voters. Now, First of all, there have been presidents who have been elected without any majority. Bill Clinton, of course, in 1992, because you had a three-way race. Several times where you have significant third parties, it would be impossible to get 50% of the vote. And so is it possible that someone who gets 38% of the vote really supports the country more than someone who gets 37% of the vote? Uh, that's that's a question in itself. But Frankly, I have always said that the Electoral College is a, an act of prophetic genius on the part of the founding fathers. First of all, winning the popular vote isn't actually as decisive as it sounds. It's possible for a candidate to carry every registered voter in Alaska, lose every other state by 10,000 votes, and still win the election. So that's in part the entire reason the Electoral College was created, to make sure that someone who's popular in only one area, or panders only to one area, isn't elected because then you have to be president of the whole people, the whole country. Uh, the most celebrated founding father right now, Alexander Hamilton, sir, mm -hmm. uh, wrote in uh, Federalist Papers, and this is a quote, talents for low intrigue may alone suffice to elevate a man to the first honors in a single state, but it will require a different kind of merit to establish him in the esteem and confidence of the whole union. And what he's saying is, you may be able to rise to one place and, and be a one-state demagogue, say, like uh, Senator Huey Long, but in order for the whole country to buy in, you have to appeal to everyone. And in an increasingly diverse country that has less and less in common, that kind of unity is more important than ever. So I think the Electoral College does an important job of protecting and assuring that even though we're all Americans, we're different kinds of Americans, and everyone's unique uh, statement is brought to the table. So I think if we're going to amend the Constitution, uh, the one that we ought to clarify beyond any question is the fact that every human life begins at conception. Hmm. Well, amen. So that would be like a clarification of the 14th, maybe. Yes, I, I think that yeah. it's already inherent in the Constitution, uh, at least in the 14th Amendment, possibly elsewhere. But it would definitely go a long way to establishing and living out uh, the creed that was established by our founding fathers that Everyone is created equal by our creator and endowed with the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So um, there are actually uh, – it, it, every, every time Congress convenes, there are actually lots of proposed um, amendments to the U.S. Constitution. If you want to do a little research on that, you can do so at congress.gov. Um, ben, let's talk about uh, this, this article um, out of Turkey and why um, – why we should care that a human rights attorney died in a Turkish prison. Yes, uh, this was a, a lady by the name of Ibru Timtik, 42-year-old lawyer who is a human rights lawyer uh, who'd been fasting in prison on a hunger strike for 238 days. Uh, and she's the third member of her organization to die of a hunger strike. Now, I don't want to lionize her too much because she was a, a member of the Revolutionary People's Liberation Party Front, which is a it's a Marxist organization. Uh, it bombed the U.S. Embassy in 2013. So 
Uh, it's not an organization that we would support. However, the fact is that Turkey is a repressive state, and it's an Islamist state. Uh, communists are obviously are secularists, and sometimes those two are in tension, as we found in Afghanistan in the 1980s and in the stands throughout the entire existence of the Soviet Union, as we're seeing with the Uyghurs in China today, that Marxism is secular and it's, uh, it is opposed to any kind of religion. Islamism is opposed to any non-Islamic religion or any secular faith. And so there's persecution in either case. What, uh, what Christian people want is a tolerance, as you were saying, for everyone. We don't believe that anyone should be persecuted. It's, we believe that it's impossible for anyone's faith to be compelled, either to believe or to disbelieve in anything or anyone. Everyone should have the right to make their own decisions and live their life. Turkey is a repressive state, and anyone who speaks against the president, regardless of their religion and regardless of what they have to say, uh, anyone who speaks against President Erdogan is in danger of their lives, and quite uh, in increasingly, that's becoming a state that is cracking down on the expression of of uh, free exp the free expression of not only of religion but of freedom of speech. And this is this is part of an ongoing movement around the world, not just in Islamism. The fact is, uh, as as you have said so many times and so eloquently. There are nations that simply do not have this commitment to freedom, nations like China and North Korea and Venezuela and increasingly in Hong Kong, as we've discussed, because they are building on a foundation of shifting sands. They aren't built on the gospel, which affirms human dignity and freedom. It does not believe that for freedom hath he set us free, and therefore the government is persecuting and trying to crush the freedom of its citizens. Ben, um, lots of people are going to be uh, very, very aware of the headline related to uh, suspending the payroll tax. Um, just, just remind us for a moment um, that that executive. Well, talk about a little bit about the duration of executive orders and why we need to be mindful um, about getting maybe too excited about something like the suspension of the payroll tax. Yeah, the, frankly, there is very little constitutional authority for what President Trump is doing. He's more or less daring people to challenge him because it's such a popular idea to suspend a tax. The payroll tax, of course, is what's withheld from uh, your tax for Medicare and Social Security. He said that those funds will come out of the general fund so it doesn't threaten the overall health of Social Security itself. But an executive order, according to the way that it's intended to be used, should only be under something that the president actually has the power and authority to control like uh, conditions for workers who work for the federal government. The president is not a king. He doesn't have the right to make policy with a stroke of a pen. And so it doesn't matter whether that president's Barack Obama or Donald Trump. Uh, the fact of the matter is that no one should have that kind of power that uh, we rebelled against King George III in order to deprive him of. We have executive orders that are still on the books and still operative uh, from, from uh, all the way back to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, as we've said on this program, when a president does something and has repercussions for uh, for decades sometimes, we have national emergencies that were declared by Jimmy Carter that are still considered national emergencies today, even though they were temporary emergencies. So presidents increasingly are looking to their own power to circumvent Congress, and that is the exact opposite of the system that the founding fathers intended. Congress is the level closest to the people. The president is not a king or a dictator, and it doesn't matter the the content of the policy, which I think is a good policy momentarily, it's a good way to stimulate the economy temporarily, 
Uh, that's a good idea. He knows that Nancy Pelosi and uh, the Democrats in the House will never go for it, but it's wrong to circumvent them. If if you are the leader of a of a nation, again, you have to work across party lines. You find a way to get it into policy, or you do without the policy. You don't do without the Constitution. Always helpful. Thank you so much for the clarity with which you think and communicate with us. That is Ben Johnson. He's an executive editor at the Acton Institute. You can find him at acton.org or at the Rights Writer. Ben, thanks so much. Thank you so much. God bless. You too. We'll be right back. How now shall we pray? I don't know about you, but I have a. Uh, I, I'm always faced with the challenge when asked to pray um, by someone who, you know, wants a particular outcome. Um, I recognize they're letting the desires of their hearts be known to God, and that's biblical. But how do I how do I discern when to come along someone or some issue group um, to fast and pray? over a various cause or concern. I'm going to actually ask Kathy Branzell how she discerns, uh, how she engages. So she's the head of the National Day of Prayer Task Force. We're going to talk about their 40 Days of Love, which starts Saturday, September the 19th. We're also going to talk about how now shall we pray when a nation, when our nation seems so divided. All right, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. You can be certain that one day your kids will realize the uncertainty of life. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. When I think about what kids view and hear today, it's no surprise that many kids entering adolescence are filled with questions. They're undecided about which path to take. They don't feel ready to face the world. And they're on the fence whether or not they buy into the stuff their parents taught them. The uncertainty can be overwhelming. Moms and dads need to be aware of this anxiety simmering beneath the surface. You have an opportunity right now to step in and calm a few fears. You can be one of the certain, predictable, and constant forces in your teen's life. When all else fails, moms and dads turn to Mark Gregston for help. Equip yourself with the wisdom you need to succeed at parentingtodaysteens.org. Kathy Branzell, she heads up the National Day of Prayer Task Force. Kathy, welcome back. Can she hear me, Paul? I can't hear her. Yep. Can you oh, hear hi. me? Good morning. Yeah, yeah. Good morning. Welcome morning. back. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> it's great to hear your voice. You too, my friend. Thank How you. are you? Thank you. I am well. It's well with my soul. Thank you. Amen. Thank you. Um, let's um, let's actually lead off with um, something that I want people to jot down and take note of, and that is this invitation to the forty days of love, which yes. starts in I don't know, just a couple of weeks. So, talk with yep. us about the forty days of love. Yes. So it begins September nineteenth, uh, which you know it begins. Uh, we go through the ten days of awe. Um, praying, and it goes through October 28th. And the whole idea is so simple. 
is uh, because God, uh, Jesus, taught us to pray, commanded us to love, and commissioned us to go and make disciples. And he modeled that lifestyle just kind of every day along the way, wherever he was. So the easy idea is to write down 10 names of people that you're going to pray for for 40 days. And you're going to pray and ask God also to show you ways that you can show them his love. You can meet a need, show kindness, uh, brotherly love, and then um, there will be an open door to share the gospel with them, to share scripture with them, to encourage them through scripture easily, easily. So if you just go to 40daysoflove.net, the 40daysoflove.net, an easy way for you just to live a prayer care share lifestyle. I, I love this. It's so simple, um, and you and I both know it is so impactful. So um, mm-hmm. it's really easy. We just invite everybody to um, to participate. 40 days, it's the number 40, 40daysoflove.net. And again, between now and September the 19th, you, um, you can be, you know, working on your list of names, right? So, yes. and we're not saying you have to wait uh, to pray for them either or to care for them, right? God is going to leave, lead us. Uh, to particular people, to particular individuals and situations where he wants to use us as his appointed servant, as his appointed ambassador at a particular time and place to actually bring his grace to bear on the life of another person. Um, And so we want to invite you into that 40daysoflove.net. Okay, Kathy, this is like a wide open uh, counsel me uh, question. Sure. Okay, so right now in my inbox... I have uh, invitations from uh, various causes and concerns and organizations to engage in fasting and prayer for the people of Lebanon, um, for racial reconciliation in the United States, for the witness of the Christian church, for the election, for the Uyghurs. Um, the, my invitations to fast and pray um, mm-hmm. seem, are seemingly endless right now. How do I go about discerning? How do I go about discerning the various causes and concerns for which, about which, uh, God is actually leading me to fast and pray. Right. Well, you know, and that's the beauty of his creativity we've been talking about in this time of um, just the conversations about justice and race and uh, and all these things. We've been talking about um, what God requires. And I love in his creativity of how he knit each one of us together different. Physically, on the outside, he also knit us together to experience life and express his love in very unique ways. And so all of us are called to different parts of his mission field, to different things. And so he has put in you a heart for um, for one area and me another. And so I love that you have a box full of opportunities, but they're not all obligations. Um, and, and yes, we want to pray for all. Yes, we want to express love to all as we go, but he calls us to a fast. Um, he calls us into prayer. The Spirit prompts us in various ways. And so uh, where I might have a deep heart for veterans, you might have a deep heart for the homeless, or yes, the Lebanese, or yes, uh, we there are, God bless them, many people who are passionate about our government and having godly leaders. But we just want to make sure in all of this that we um, are prayerful and not sinful 
um, in these ways and that we are always praying his kingdom come, his will be done. So part of the challenge, um, and I just confess that I, um, uh, that I face, <clears throat> I have to tell a lot of these people no. I mean, or I would just be fasting. That's This is all I would be doing. Right. And so, right. um, which would make it increasingly difficult to get up in the morning and do my job and feed my family and, you know, right? Okay. So, right. um, yep. so you know, this past Monday, I did fast and pray with a particular group of people mm-hmm. and organization over a particular concern and issue. Mm-hmm. But I didn't, you know, I didn't share that because that's not a right. part of what you're doing. Like, that's not Correct. what this is about. And right. yet, and yet... A huge part of these campaigns is they want to count noses and then they want mm-hmm. to be able to tell everybody there's this many people fasting and praying on our issue today. You know, and mm-hmm. I, the whole thing has become kind of weird in the in the Christian organizational <laughs> culture. So I don't know. I I yep. I be, I I recognize the power of fasting and praying when it is. Um, yeah. When people are doing it because God has called them to do it and when they're doing it, um, you know, prompted by the Holy Spirit. Um, I just have an increasing concern about the way that I, I I see it sort of like multiplying in these days when because people can't get together, they're trying to find other things for people to do with right. them, um, you know, separated from one another. So I don't know. I just lift it up as a yeah. mutual prayer we, concern we for the We did that with the Nehemiah response. But instead of going through and trying to count hashtags, you know, and how many people... Um, you know, this this isn't a, a, a something for my impact report at the end of the year. Mm. We were just trying to change the atmosphere. And so, uh, you know, we need to press in and keep going. Uh, I pray that 40 days of love changes the atmosphere. We have a very angry, divided atmosphere in America right now. And so I would just let God speak for himself. I know we want to metrics and count and measure everything, and and that matters a lot of times. But just let the Holy Spirit move because he his impact his his multiplying impact can't be counted, can't be measured. He he always does immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. And so, uh, just be prompted by the Spirit. Pray in the Spirit fast when you're called by the Spirit, but you're not supposed to let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. So this isn't something, you know, that we shout from the mountaintops, look at me, I'm fasting. Yeah, it's a private mm-hmm. matter. Mm-hmm. All right. You you um, you you noted there um, the Nehemiah uh, project. Remind us about that and tell us uh, what the status of that uh, of that project is. Yeah, so we are so grateful. We are, we wanted to change the atmosphere of America in prayer and the Word of God. We had just gotten uh, caught up in empty chatter and gossip and being divided. And so we just said, hey, take your wall, your social media wall, take possession of that piece that's broken and insert a prayer based on Scripture every single day, and then get two friends uh, at least to do this with you. Go to their Facebook page or their social media page, agree, pray in agreement with their prayer, and share it. And the same thing with your other friend. And we just wanted to fill the air with prayer. We have been so grateful for everybody who's participated with us and started putting positive, prayerful things on their social media. Um, the change the atmosphere language um, is I'm familiar with, but for those people who are not familiar with this, talk talk about 
the the power that an individual has in the environment where they operate and in their spheres of influence, including social media. Changing the atmosphere is is what's happening there. Right. Uh, it's it's huge, and, and you can feel it. You can feel it in your body. It's the way that God knit us together. And so, just think about how a happy person, somebody walking in a room with a smile and saying, good morning, everyone. How you doing? Uh, you know, or walking and going, have you heard the great news or great job at work yesterday? Just want to start this meeting off by saying thank you. Okay, that actually changes the chemical, uh, you know, mix going on in our, in our bodies and, versus somebody coming in grumpy, slamming a book down, calling a name. And, and all this epinephrine and adrenaline hits your body because you go into fight or flight. And, and so you can actually change the atmosphere of a room, of a conversation by speaking hope, you know, uh, even going into First um, Peter 3.15. Okay, I, I have to confess, I have misquoted the scripture a bunch of times in my life. And, and you know it, I know it, but in your hearts, Revere Christ as Lord, always being prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. I confess, I have left the end of that verse off, um, not on purpose, but just, you know, we, we rattle off what we can remember or whatever. And so remembering that speaking with gentleness, speaking with respect um, bringing in the Holy Spirit, um, not the enemy, into a room, into a conversation, into our social media, changes the atmosphere of the room. You're saying, Holy Spirit, fill. All right, we got to take a very brief break. When Kathy and I return, I am going to ask her, how now shall we pray? Like, how how should we be praying and loving and living right now in the midst of such a divided nation? We'll be right back. Let us pray, let us pray. Continuing my conversation with Kathy Branzell from the National Day of Prayer Task Force. So, Kathy, um, wow, it just seems like everything is so, like, literally hot right now. Um, supposedly, it's fall. I don't know about where you are physically today, but where I am physically today is, I, I would just describe the weather as putrid. Um, it's hot. It's muggy. It's nasty. Um, yes. Fall. If people try to serve pumpkin spice, it's way too early for that. Um, but the division in the country is um, is significant. It's yeah. significant in our in some of our very closest relationships. Talk with us about how to be praying and loving and living our way through through all this. Yeah, it, um, that's interesting. See, we could that's a perfect example right there. See, you and I could disagree that it's too early for pumpkin spice because I think you know, it's never too we could early. Di- Bring on the pumpkin. We could disagree about mean, whether or not uh, quiche is pie, could, but there you go. Thank you. Yes. And so what's, what's <laughs> supposed to be beautiful about the body of Christ is that we can disagree without dividing that, uh, you know, that pumpkin spice is not a theology, you know, <laughs> it is not, we, we agree on Jesus Christ as Lord, we agree on his supremacy. So in all of that, I, I think it, that we have become so divided and angry has taken over in so many ways. And the Bible has a lot to say about that, but just going into 
Second Peter chapter three, you know, he, he says, so how ought we to live? And, and it's in holy conduct and godliness, peaceful, you know, again, a, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Um, be in, in our anger, uh, do not sin, it says in Ephesians. There, there's all of these um, where uh, we remember from Proverbs, a fool argues with a fool. You know, the minute we get mad, again, going back to that atmosphere thing, the chemistry in our body changes when you get mad and the logical part of your brain turns off. And that's when we say and do things that we regret. And so how do we just pause and say, Holy Spirit, fill? Mm. Deep breath, Holy Spirit, fill. Take you in. I am. I want to. Um, I want to be peaceful. I want to be gentle. I. I want to be a reflection of the Holy Spirit in me and the Jesus who loves me, and not add kindling or gasoline to the fire. But again, going back to that. Um, being able to give an answer for our hope, but doing it gently and respectfully. Holy Spirit, fill. You know, it reminds me, Kathy, that um, we're all full of something. <clears throat> Everybody's full of something. And if if in the midst of all of this, I am not intentionally asking God to fill me anew and afresh every single day, even moment by moment, with his spirit, with his love, with yeah. his mercy, then I am going to be full of all the things that the world is dishing out. Mm-hmm. That's right. And what and That's what right. I'm full of is what's going to come back out of me when I get squeezed. Right, right. Because yeah. over from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so people can go, I was just kidding. Oh, I didn't really mean it. But But the truth is, what's inside you comes out. And um, you can pretend all that you want on the outside, but, um, you know, when your back's against the wall, who you really are and what's really inside of you is what comes out. And so we've got to be very careful, especially in this great season of dividedness, to make sure that it's Jesus that's coming out. So I know that we are um, still in 2020, but I'm willing to bet that you already have... uh the the wheels are already turning on a theme for the 2021 National Day of Prayer. Yes, we are going to announce it at our summit next weekend. So <laughs> next time I am on the, the phone with you, the next time we're together, I can tell you what the theme is. <laughs> okay. All right. Very well, excited. Um, so, yeah. So there you go. So. Um, all right, so uh, so next week you've got a summit. T- tell us uh, tell us about that. I know it's um it's all booked up, but um but tell us about it. Yes, and I you know we would love your prayers for that. Uh, so our coordinators, and we have thousands. Thank you, Jesus, thousands of National Day of Prayer Task Force coordinators who are mobilizing Unified Public Prayer for America year round. We are a big part of the prayer movement, so we're not just that one day. And so we go through very extensive training for days and days together at our summit every year. Uh, We have more people signed up for our summit than ever in the Mm. history of National Day of Prayer. So we are thanking God for that. And we will be meeting next week um, on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and we will be announcing the theme. And so then we will post it 
on Facebook after that on the National Day of Prayer Facebook page and Instagram page. But if you would be praying for our coordinators, praying for the National Day of Prayer, uh, we would we would greatly, greatly appreciate that. Let's do that. Let's just do that right now. Let's do that right now. Yes. Father, we come before you as brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, our voices are many. Our hearts are one. Our Savior is Jesus. Um, we are uh, inviting you to fill us anew today with your Holy Spirit. And we are asking and anointing upon the National Day of Prayer Summit as you draw together uh, these men and women from across the United States of America who are committed to being agents of your grace and mercy in every community under the sun, mobilizing unified and unifying public prayer in this country. So bless them as they gather. Bless Kathy as she uh, as she shepherds them and leads them. Uh, and Father, uh, bless us as we pray for one another in the spirit of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you, my Amen. sister. Thanks, my friend. I'll talk to you soon. Yes, absolutely. Have a great day. We'll be right back. All right. uh, Very quickly here. Last night for the first time in three years, the September full moon um, happened so early in the month that apparently it is called the corn moon. So if you have corn, it's time to pick it. That's that is what I know. Um, so it's it sets the stage for uh, October to actually have two full moons. My granddaughter uh, Evelyn informed me of this yesterday. She said there will be a rare blue moon that will shine on Halloween, and I ought to get ready. I have no idea what that means, but there you go. Um, let me just remind you that God has some things to say about the sun and the moon and the stars as you read. Headlines today about, I don't know, two black holes colliding with one another and creating a new black hole. That's in the headline news. Or that uh, artificial intelligence has now, you know, identified some hundreds of planets that apparently were evident on uh, on on some things that, that we were using to take pictures of outer space, but the human eye couldn't see. Let me just say, go, go back and read Genesis 1, 14 to 19. Be reminded where the moon and the stars and the sun all came from. Who is the creator behind it all? Because origins matter, and the origin story matters, and it's the beginning of the arc of redemptive history. And so let me just invite you today to give honor where honor is due to our Lord and Savior and our creator God. we got a whole other hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Waiting right now, Peter Kapsner, and then at the bottom of the next hour, I've got Daniel Hill, author of White Lies. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.